Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, the band. Nice to be here again. Um, and nice to see you all. I see a number of familiar faces and some new faces, and that's always a good sign. A few months back, uh, I preached a, a sermon here on um, the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I say, uh, I preached it, I, I didn't actually, I wasn't actually here because um, uh, with my wife's mother living with us and she's quite elderly now, we were being ultra cautious about COVID and so uh, we haven't been mixing anywhere and so what I did is I sent it in a video. And so we, I sent the sermon in a video and you saw that uh, and I don't know if you remember that. Nobody, right. Okay. <laughs> That's very encouraging. Uh, <laughs> uh, I must tell you, Jackie White, and a lot of you know Jackie White, he sent me um, a link the other day. He said I was reading this article by whoever it was, John Piper or something, and he said it, it reminded me of a sermon that you preached in Carrick. My sermon was probably better, but he reminded me of, reminded me of the sermon. And um, I, I, I texted him back. I said, wow, you remember one of my sermons from Carrick, he said, I remember somebody shouted out, help him, Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know whether I was in Carrick or not, but um, there we go. So I want to try and continue that sermon this morning, but because it was a few months ago, uh, I want to try and do a rapid recap of what I said then. But first of all, let's, let's read uh, a bit of this sermon this morning. This is a sermon that Jesus preached. It's in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and just so that we cover what we covered last time, the reading's going to be a little bit longer. I'm going to start at verse 13, and I'm going to run right down to uh, verse 42. So just try and bear with me here. And this is Jesus preaching. And he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to, to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And first go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. 
or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to commit an, be an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstone, or, or, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair, even one hair, white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes to the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Someone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your enemies, and love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I'm going to finish there. And that last verse is particularly poignant this morning, isn't it? We're sitting here in safety and comfort in Carrick Fergus, but think of our brothers and sisters in the church in Ukraine, and they're reading that passage. Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's very real, isn't it? Uh, following Christ is certainly not the easy option. Let me just pray, and then we'll, we'll go on with this. Father, we pray this morning that as we look at this sermon that Jesus preached, this very practical, this very real, this very down-to-earth, earthy sermon, that we take it on board, that we listen to what you're saying to us, and that we, 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 we attune our lives to it, that it isn't some, simply something that we've, that we've learned in our heads, but that it's into our hearts and it affects our lives and affects our relationships with those around us, that we may be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I said the, the last time I was here on video that the, the Sermon on the Mount does not contain a lot of what we might call theology. There's not a lot of that in here, you know. There's nothing in here about substitutionary atonement or the priesthood of all believers or anything like that. This is Jesus preaching a sermon which is essentially on how to live a life that pleases God. How to live a life that pleases God. I remember saying then that there's a danger that as evangelicals, our definition of a Christian is someone who can tick all the right doctrinal boxes, you know. Uh, there's a danger that our faith becomes intellectual, largely academic, 
where we know and preach and can debate theology, but our lives don't reflect what we actually know in our heads, what we're reading. So it's not that theology is unimportant, it's very important, but the point of theology is that so we might come to know God and might worship him in a way that pleases him, that we might live lives, lives of worship that please him. So when Jesus calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world, what's he saying to us? Well, we still use those expressions today, don't we? Old so-and-so is the salt of the earth, you know. There's John Brown down there, great fellow, doing anything for you, he's the salt of the earth, you know. But when Jesus uses that term, the salt of the earth, it's not a compliment, it's a challenge, isn't it? When he, when he calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world, those aren't compliments, they're challenges. He's challenging us to fulfill our role as salt and light in a corrupt and a dark world. And he warns us in this sermon, in the early part of that sermon, not to allow the world to wash the saltiness out of us, nor to intimidate us into hiding our light under a bowl. And we can so easily do that, can't we? We maybe find ourselves in company and the conversation turns a bit unsavory or critical and we feel we really should speak up, but we don't want to be thought goody two-shoes and so we bite our lip, we say nothing. Uh, we hide our light under a bowl. Hmm. He also reminds us that we can't circumvent God's law by adhering to the letter but ignoring the spirit of the law. Very often it's easier to adhere to the letter of the law than it is to adhere to the spirit of the law. Uh, And if you remember the last time on the video, uh, we talked about this hypothetical situation, hope it's hypothetical for you, where you were were stopped by the police doing 57 miles an hour uh, in a 30 mile an hour zone, going past a school getting out, you know. And you knew if this goes to court, I will not only get points in my license, I could find I could very well lose the license under these circumstances. And so you feel it's worth your while to hire this hotshot lawyer who uh, manages to find some loophole in the law uh, and, and get you off. Uh, and you leave court uh, a free man. No points in your license, no fine, no endorsement. And the question is, well, are you guilty or not guilty? Well, the law says you're not guilty. But of course you are, aren't you? You've been doing 57 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. Of course you're guilty. And Jesus goes on to give examples how people were trying to circumvent the law. Here's one. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, murder, of course, is, is, is rightly condemned. It's the sixth commandment. But uh, that doesn't mean that anything short of murder is okay. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The, the, let, let's look at that for a moment. The, the anger there spoken here isn't simply the flaring up of bad temper. That is condemned elsewhere. We have to guard our tongues. We have to learn to do that. Control our tongue. But the word used here for anger is that smoldering anger. You know the anger that you nurse and you feed uh, and which can fester into hatred. And we know all too well, in this country especially, don't we, what can happen when a, a, a smoldering hatred is allowed to develop. All sorts of evil runs from that. Did you notice, by the way, that that phrase, subject to judgment? 
you will be subject to judgment. We're only judged in those things over which we have no control. You're not going to be judged for having red hair or no hair or big nose, trying to avoid looking at anybody there. You're not going to be judged for that. You have no control over that. Robert Amos, the, the Baptist pastor, tells a story, and I'm sure I've told it to you before, about the, the, the man who came into his, his study one morning. He made an appointment to see him. He had, he had a problem, and he started by saying to Robert Amos, you know, pastor, I have a bad temper. And Robert Amos stopped them there. He said, well, hang on, John. How long are you a Christian? John said, I've been saved 40 years, pastor. Says there's something seriously wrong, John. You shouldn't still have a bad temper. So Jesus doesn't allow us to treat a bad temper as a personality trait. That's something that we need to control, need to get over. Nor does he allow us to regard holding on to a, a brooding anger as justifiable. Or to use abusive language to people. Or to treat them aggressively or with contempt. The Aramaic word is raka. You're a... Useless, you're, you're worthless, you're a waste of space. We can't excuse these things as, well, you know, Pastor, I've got a bad temper. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. We will be judged in how we interact with people. That's what Jesus is saying here. You and I will be judged in how we interact with people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, but people in general. And that's important, isn't it? This is a very practical, down to earth sermon that Jesus is preaching. There's nothing highly intellectual about this. This is, this is how we live a Christian life. And if you were the sort of person who's abusive to shop assistants or, or waiters or, or office juniors or to other people who can't really defend themselves, they're not in a position to defend themselves, uh, and, you, and you give them a hard time unjustifiably, you will be judged for it. If you're the sort of boss who humiliates and bullies subordinates in work, you will be judged for it. I'm sure you've gone somewhere and seen these posters up, this sort of thing. Huh? If you're the sort of person whose behavior requires organizations to put those posters up, and they're everywhere, every public building you into now has posters of this type. If you're the sort of person who requires that organization to put up posters like that, first of all, you ought to be thoroughly ashamed of yourself. But secondly... Jesus says you'll be judged for it. How we treat one another is important to God. Therefore, says Jesus, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Now, of course, we don't have an altar any longer. Jesus has fulfilled that area. But we, we, we no longer need to make sacrifices. He is the one sacrifice for all time, isn't he? So we don't have an altar. But what we're referring to here is an act of worship. Uh, and what Jesus is saying to us here is, sort out your relationships with people before you come to worship God. Leave your gift at the altar and go and maybe reconcile. Then come back and then worship. Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, uh, told the story on one occasion of, of uh, reading through, I think maybe the Sermon on the Mount, and it came to something like that. He said, I left my notes. Uh, always an interesting thing to do. He said, I left my notes, and uh, I, I, I said, um, you know, it would be more important that you go and are reconciled with someone that you have fallen out with than you sit here for the remainder of the sermon. 
more important to God, you go now and be reconciled rather than sit through the sermon. And he said, that wasn't on my notes. <coughs> and I, put my, I looked down again to find my place. And when I looked up, he said, a lot of the church had gone out into the hall to the pay phones, no mobile phones in those days, out to the pay phones. And they were, they were literally ringing people to be reconciled to them. That was the impact it had. And then having said that, Jesus gives us what appears to be the sort of legal advice you would expect from a lawyer. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you not get out until you've paid the last penny. Sort of advice you might get from a lawyer. Or maybe the lawyer would encourage you to take it to court and charge you £200 an hour for representing you. But Jesus says, settle quickly in the way. Settle matters quickly. You see, Jesus is not just giving you legal advice. Jesus is giving us advice for life, isn't he? Settle matters quickly. Because problems get worse the longer we let them go. Do not let those family disputes sit and fester. Sort them out. Don't allow that broken relationship to run on and on. Where nobody's prepared to make the first phone call or get that sorted. Don't let them run on. Don't continue to harbor resentment over past wrongs, real or imagined. A lot of them are imagined. Settle them quickly, move on. I meet people who are ruining their own lives every day by holding on to some dispute that happened years ago. It's their own life they're ruining. And of course, settle financial obligations quickly as well. I think that goes without saying, doesn't it? You know, what causes problems for businesses isn't necessarily a lack of orders. There are businesses with lots of orders in the books. What's, what's causing problems for them is cash flow. The work has been done and the material has been paid for by, the, uh, by the, the, the company, but they haven't been paid by the people they did the work for. So settle matters quickly. We dealt with uh, adultery and divorce the last time, and so uh, I'm not going to cover it again today, but let's just highlight that point that Jesus is making again, that you can't, like the speeding motorist, get off on the technicality that you didn't engage in the physical act of adultery. Jesus makes it clear that if we're consumed with lust for another woman, we're guilty of adultery. Similar with divorce. Moses brought in the system, as you know, to regulate divorce so that women who were in a very vulnerable position in that society could not simply be thrown out in the street on the whim of a husband. The man was now required to go go through some sort of a legal process and obtain a bill of divorcement. But that bill of divorcement was only meant to be issued where there was a serious betrayal of the marriage. Uncleanness was the term used. A bill of divorcement didn't give you the right to get rid of your wife over some trivial incident, which is what was happening. And Jesus made it clear that the fact that you could wave this bill of divorcement about didn't give you the right to divorce your wife. Now, you'll notice that in each of those three examples Jesus gives us, they are about our relationships with one another. And there are more examples to come. And the danger for us as evangelicals is 
that we have become so focused on our personal relationship with God. It's not where we are. What's your personal relationship with God like? We become so focused on that, and that's important. But we can forget that Jesus tells us that our relationship with other people is just as important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the things that ought to mark you and me out as Christians is our integrity. We must be able to be trusted. And so in in, in verse 33, Jesus deals with integrity. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, because you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Everything beyond this comes from the evil one. What's this about? Well, I know that some Christians, having read this, uh, are very uncomfortable, maybe refuse to take the oath in court. You know that oath, I swear by Almighty God, my heavens to this court. They don't like doing that. And so they prefer to affirm. I do solemnly declare and affirm. And ironically, when people refuse to swear the oath and choose to affirm instead, the people in the courtroom don't necessarily uh, assume that they're doing that because they're Christians. Some of them think they're doing it because they're, they're, they're atheists and don't believe in either God or the Bible. But if you're uncomfortable taking the oath in that way, my advice is just to continue to affirm if you find yourself in that position. But really, this is not about that. This is about a practice that, again, had become corrupted. Sin corrupts everything. This practice had become corrupted. If you took an oath in God's name, you were bound by it. It was unbreakable. There was no way out. And in fact, when we read uh, in the Ten Commandments about taking the Lord's name in vain, this is one of the things it's referring to. One of the ways you could take God's name in vain was to swear an oath in God's name and then break your oath. And that was a very serious thing. And so to give themselves some regal room, people began to swear by other things, things like heaven or or earth or the hair on their head. And that oath oath wouldn't be just so binding. And some folk didn't like using God's name, and so they would swear by these other things. But again, that oath wasn't quite so binding. And Jesus says, you shouldn't need to swear by anything. Just yes and no is all you need to say. Because if you are a follower of mine, the truth is a sacred thing to you, and your word is your bond. And the question is for us as Christians, can we be trusted? As far as things are within our control, can we be trusted to do what we say? Can we be trusted to keep our promises? One of the marks of a Christian ought to be integrity. Our yes should be yes, our no should be no. Another mark of the Christian that Jesus points out here is is generosity. It's a very practical sermon, this, isn't it? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You, you know, like the, like the bill of divorce, like the eye for the eye law. This was, the, the eye for the eye law was introduced to regulate some form of, of summary justice that was being handed out at the time. Some sort of proportionality. If someone punched you in the mouth and knocked out a tooth, a proportionate punishment was that they would lose a tooth. Uh, it was pretty brutal, but it meant that if someone knocked your tooth out, you couldn't send the lads around with baseball bats and cripple them for life, you know. But Jesus was making the point here, you're not obliged to do it at all. Huh? You're not obliged to return evil for evil. The law says you can, but you're not obliged to do it. I don't know if any of you ever watched uh, a series, I hope they do another one, um, what is it, Mortimer and White High School Fishing, I know some fishing people in here, there was a great series in BBC, I used to love watching, it's uh, Mortimer and, and Whitehouse went fishing, and it was Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse, and I think Bob Mortimer is very funny, um, and they would go fishing, and Mortimer knew nothing about fishing, and it was all really about teaching him how to fish, and the, the crack that they had while they were fishing. And some of it was actually quite profound, you know. And on one of those um, trips while they were fishing a river, Mortimer said to Paul Whitehouse, what's the classiest thing you ever did? What's the classiest thing you ever did? And Paul Whitehouse thought about it for a moment. He said, the classiest thing I ever did was that when people were nasty to me, I didn't return fire with fire. And Bob said, wow, that is class. When people were nasty to me, I didn't return fire or fire. That's what turning the other cheek's all about. Having the courage, having the self-restraint, having the maturity. Not to return fire with fire. Now, some young parents here. Um, incidentally, if you are a young parent and your child is being bullied at school, what do you do? Huh? Uh, do you teach them to turn the other cheek? I don't know what you may have your own idea. Uh, what I did with our boys, uh, you might want to go a different route. That's okay. I told them that if anyone hit them, they had my permission to hit them back. You know, <laughs> Because I wanted them to know that they could stand up for themselves. So that later, when they were more mature, and they could choose, they could choose not to retaliate and do that from a position of strength and not of weakness knowing that I could hit you back and I could hit you hard, but I'm not going to do that. I'm doing it from a position of strength and not a weakness. That was our position. You might decide to take a different one. But turning the other cheek, choosing not to return fire with fire, is a mature, generous response to provocation. So much more we could say about this sermon, and if you knew how much I was leaving out, you'd be so grateful. <laughs> However, Jesus continues with more teaching, which is completely countercultural, as all of this is. Uh, but we'll see the wisdom behind it in a moment. And here's what he says. I, I, I have no glasses on, so I can't read that. So I'm hoping about what I put up is what I've got here. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. What's, what's, what's going on there? We hear a lot about victimhood at the moment, don't we? Lots of people who are victims. Uh, well, a generous spirit is a way to counteract victimhood. 
with generous spirits, a way to counter victimhood. The law of impressment in Roman times meant that a Roman soldier could compel you, a Jew, to perform labor or, or to carry some of his gear, his equipment or his armor or something for a mile. You're familiar with that idea. And when that mile was up, you had fulfilled your legal obligation. That was it. You could compel you to do it, go a mile, but no further. It was an imposition on the civilian population, and it was demeaning, and it was humiliating, and it could also, of course, be very inconvenient. You could be in the middle of something important when you're commandeered and taken a mile out of your way, and then you have to walk a mile back again, back home. So you were a victim, no question about it. And you could fume and steam and resent every, journey, every step of the journey. But there was nothing you could do about it until the mile was up. Imagine for a moment how that whole dynamic would change. If at the end of the mile you say to this Roman soldier, listen, you look pretty done in. And there's another village a mile down the road. What about if I just carry this on to the next village for you? And you get someone there to take it on another bit. Imagine how that whole dynamic would change. You are no longer a victim. You are now a generous and charitable companion. You didn't have to do it. You said, you look pretty done. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to carry this another mile for you. Um, I have a a friend in Canada. He was at film school uh, somewhere up in Edmonton or something. And when he, when he um, qualified, uh, graduated, committed to film school, he got a job actually with a film company. But he's only at a film school, so he's right at the bottom of the heap. You know, he's the gopher uh, on the studio floor, and he goes and he, he gets stuff for people. Uh, but the film that he was making uh, had quite a number of sort of A-list uh, celebrities in it, sort of film stars. And, and one of them, Hunter, he called this young fella. One of them said, listen, uh, would you, there's my car keys. Would you go to my car and get me my phone? And Hunter went to the car, opened the car, got the guy's phone. But the guy's car was an absolute tip. I mean, if you've seen my car, it was worse. It was an absolute tip. And so he brought him his phone back, but he held on to the keys. And he went back to the car. And he tidied the car, sort of valeted the car, got everything sorted out and got it cleaned up and dusted and the carpet shaken out and cleaned the car up. He went the extra mile. And the guy was surprised and gratefully didn't expect that. It was a generous thing to do. Obviously, I would think it probably a pretty clever thing to do because he'd be remembered and uh, not do his career any harm. But, but he went the extra mile. He was sent to get a phone. He went to, got the phone, but he tidied the car. We can either go through life doing the minimum or we can go the extra mile. Jesus wants us to go the extra mile. Think of a situation that's coming up this week where you could say, I'll go the extra mile. I'll do a bit more than I have to. Because going the extra mile pleases God, for he has gone the extra mile for us, hasn't he? Our God is a generous God. And so there's nothing more disappointing than a mean-spirited Scrooge of a Christian. So let's be generous people, people who are generous with their time and with their talent and with their money. I want to ask you a question that I bet you've never been asked in church before. In fact, I bet you've never been asked to bet in church before. But I bet you've never been asked this in church before. The 
Because the pastor usually asks you questions about your prayer life and are you having a quiet time every morning and are you reading your Bible every day? Those are the sort of okay questions that the pastor asks you. But in the context of what Jesus has just been teaching, I'm going to ask you this. How good a tipper are you? How good a tipper are you? You're out for a meal and the bill comes to 78 pounds, 37 pence. And you said, I'm going to have to tip this waitress and the minimum... the minimum will get away with is 10%, so that's £7.83. And you say to the person across the table, listen, you wouldn't have changed the 10p, would you? Because I need 3p here. Uh, is, that, is that the sort of tipper you are? You know, for goodness sake, leave the girl a tenner. She's maybe a single mum working on minimum wage and universal credit. She needs all she can get, and you're just prepared to pay almost 80 quid for a meal. You can give her a tenner, you know. So Jesus says... Be generous. Years ago, I was in the Yemen. I was in Sana'a in the Yemen. I went down the market. And if you thought Carrickfergus market was sparse, sparse, there wasn't much in Yemen market. And I was picking up a few things. And I did a bit of dealing with the market trader boys. And uh, I came back. And I was staying with an American family in Sana'a in Yemen. And... uh, the guy said, I showed the guy what I'd bought. Somebody said, buy in the market? And I showed him. He said, all right, what do you pay for that? And I told him. He said, hmm, he got a good deal. I said, well, that isn't what he asked for, you know. He, says, he asked several times that for it, you know. He said, why did you pay him? Why didn't you give him what he asked? I said, well, I mean, he was overcharging me. He says, it's nothing to you. You're a Westerner. It's nothing to you, but it might have been fed his family for a week in that, you know. And I felt about that high. That was a real lesson to me. He says, nothing to you, but it means a lot to him. I, he said, I just give them what they ask. Uh, and that was a lesson. Because everything that we have is a gift from God. And Paul tells Timothy that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So let's share the wealth. That's what Jesus says. Give the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In a world that wants to grasp and accumulate and hold on to stuff and hide money away in offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands where they have to pay tax on it, I don't understand the thinking behind that, this addiction to massive sums of money, whatever you need them for. But uh, let us be salt and light. Hmm? Let, let us display the grace and the love and the generosity of God. And as we said at the beginning, there's very little of what we would call theology in that sermon of Jesus. Rather, this is all about living a life that pleases God. Theology is important. We need to know what we believe. Our faith and our hope are informed by our theology. But we need to resist allowing our theology to become just another academic subject like English literature or the Greek classics. And here Jesus outlines some of the basics of Christian living. So let's be salt and light. Let's embrace the spirit of God's law and not just the letter of it. And let us live lives marked by honesty and integrity and grace and generosity. And by so doing, please God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kai's going to come and pray for us.